Hello, everyone, and welcome to Disrupt TV. My name is Valen Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce, and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to join us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send us your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV. Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests will try to answer them while we're live. Uh, we also have over 150 interviews on our podcast, so check them out on SoundCloud and iTunes. Also, subscribe to Disrupt TV on YouTube and Vimeo. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO founder of Constellation Research. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and ZDNet, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, and one of the coolest guys you can follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray. Hey, welcome. Thanks a lot, Vaughn, and my awesome co-host, um, Vala Ashtar, one of the top CIO influencers, CMO influencers also in the world, uh, major contributor to HuffPo, and more importantly, he's also an author and one of the people people trust first uh, when they talk to about technology and business. So, hey, who do we have here? We got the awesome healthcare issue. What awesome guests do we have first here today? Yeah, we have terrific guests, and I had a hard time cutting everyone's bio so we can fit this <laughs> into an hour show. Our first guest is John Nosta, president of Nosta Labs. He's a thinker entrenched in the world of science, medicine, and innovation. He's the founder of Nosta Labs, a digital health think tank. He's generally regarded as one of the top global strategic and creative thinkers in this expanding area of digital health. He's consistently ranked among the top names in almost every digital health list and has sustained that position for several years. He's a member of the Google Health Advisory Board. He pens Health Critical for Forbes, which is one of the more popular blog posts. And he writes for Digital Self for Psychology Today. He's also on the faculty of Exponential Medicine. Early in his career, John was a research associate at Harvard Medical School and has co-authored several papers, too many for me to name. He worked at Ogilvy in the capacity of Chief Creative Officer, Chief Strategic Officer, and President, Unit President. He's another amazing follow on Twitter at J O H N N O S T A. Welcome, John, to Disrupt TV. Vala Ray, it is an unqualified pleasure to be here. We've been we've been following each other and stalking each other for so long now. So it's it's a reunion for me. It's it's really great. Absolutely, absolutely. You are where I go to learn about digital health. So thank you so much for being here. No, hey, and thank you for being here. It's great catching up again. You know, yeah. look, you've said this before. Other folks have said this, but we are at an inflection point in human history. Um, yep. Profound convergence of events that are now happening. What, 10th anniversary of the smartphone? Can you even remember before the iPhone? And lots of cool stuff happening. So what's going on, right? What's the big picture? You know, Where do you see the world coming as you blend futurist, healthcare, and technology? Well, you know, inflection point, exponential growth. You hear all these words and I don't know, I think most people start to yawn. And that's what really bothers me. That worries me because I think people are missing the point. So yes, the smartphone emerged 10 years ago, which is kind of interesting. But let's, let's talk about the power of 10. And let's go back 100 years. Because something interesting happened 100 years ago, or about 100 years ago, that I think is really relevant today. So if you go back to the year 1900, what happened? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm sure there's something going on, but for the most part, 1915, 1916, 1917, we really saw the emergence of a new century, a century built on technology, a century around things like uh, the mass of the electron, things like the airplane. And what I'm seeing now is the same dynamic because what happened in the year 2000? Nothing. 
Why, Y2K didn't happen. So that was kind of interesting. But now, you know, even the birth of the smartphone, which really is, I think, the pivotal element, that's 2007. So what we're seeing is a convergence of technology, of social issues, including strife, including political concerns, and add to that a sense of profound empowerment, okay, the empowerment of the consumer, and the sense of wonder. And, and I'll wrap it up real quick because that sense of wonder was experienced in 1917 when someone looked up and saw the airplane. And what they saw was wonder and fear. And it's the same thing today with the driverless car. People look at it and have a sense of wonder and fear. And let me wrap it full circle for you because that, that inflection point is sort of defined by today. And let's go back to 10 years where we started. 10 years ago, the smartphone. 10 years from now, the driverless car will be the preferred mode of transportation versus the human-driven car simply because, just like that airplane, it's too darn risky. So, I mean, I think it's going to be profound. Sure, sure. Well, there's a question of safety, convenience. Uh, certainly what this did is to give individuals today, 10 years ago, only 3% of U.S. adults had a supercomputer in their pocket. Now right. it's about 82%. So there's more accessibility to information and the cloud, the app economy, mo mobility, yeah. social with Facebook and Twitter. We're now more informed. Uh, you know, we expect personalization, immediacy, and intelligent discourse to be part of our, uh, of our quality of life and experiences. John, what are you talking about now that you weren't talking about maybe three years ago, five years ago, in terms of digital health? Is it artificial intelligence? Because when you talk about autonomous car, most people maybe subconsciously think about AI, machine learning, deep learning, but how is that impact in healthcare? And is that the topic of, or the hottest topic today when you talk about transforming? Yes and no. I think number one, the emergence of artificial intelligence, really the empowerment of AI to a functional capacity is critical. And we're seeing this changed at an exponential rate. So we look three, four, five years out, it's going to be amazing. But go back the other way on the curve, go back three, five years, and what you're seeing is that AI wasn't quite right. Surrey wasn't quite right. You know, some of these methodologies. But the magic for me is not only the emergence of AI, but the coupling of AI with other co-evolving technologies. For example, the, the ability of big data and analytics fueled by AI in genomics, in drug development. So I think in diagnostic capabilities, we're going to see fundamental changes in mental health. Mental health is largely a subjective diagnosis, right? Are you depressed? Well, are you sad? You know, but now Facebook, using algorithms and, and functional AI, can actually tell you if you're depressed. So to me, that's the change. It's the convergence of multiple aspects of technology, principally merged with, with AI, because that's the linchpin. You know, I mean, the question is, Vala, is artificial intelligence, is it man's last great invention? <laughs> hey, or could it be like the Matrix where we actually know how to break the rules and actually, uh, you know, get in between and actually make something happen? <laughs> are, we, are, are we in the Matrix? I mean, I, you know, I, back and forth, right? Elon Musk, everybody talks about it. And well, we are in the Matrix. Are diseases, are diseases functional glitches? Oh, it could be. Yeah, it could be a really cool philosophical construct. But, but, but five years ago, were you talking about uh, potential impact of wearables and Internet of Things with diagnosis that's happening with people that wear Apple Watch or the fact that, as Ray said, we're going from 
descriptive to to diagnostic to predictive to 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 uh, you know understanding uh, contextual intelligence more so than ever before with AI is so I guess it's a combination of all of these technologies that can really impact healthcare. It's innovators who are looking at cool things like taking an accelerometer and putting it on a watch. You know, being merged with people who understand functional science, with clinicians, with patients and caregivers. And I think we're finding a new level. I mean, maybe it's a little bit like the hype, you know, the hype chart where there's a maturation. But to me, we're looking at, at, at that combination across a variety of fronts. You know, and, and, you know, part of that convergence really is about the digitization of ourself, that quantified self movement that was big about 10 years ago, then five years ago, again, it's yeah. picking up again as we speak. Um, where do we find the balance between privacy and our public health? What's being done to protect our individual rights? Is that a discussion that's also on your radar? It's on my radar. I tend to avoid it because it's too complicated, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> privacy is over. It's over. No. Yes, no. come on. I think you guys are getting it wrong. You're trying to I'm you're trying. trying to force fit the notion of contemporary privacy with with the future intrusion of AI into our world. It's it's not going to work. Look, 100 years ago, nobody knew where my farmhouse was. <laughs> and that was considered <laughs> privacy, right? Today, everybody knows where my farmhouse is. You guys can Google me. But it's do changing. I do I reserve the right to be disconnected? Let's say I'm going to go out on a binge binge weekend with my buddies, we're going out drinking, we're going to eat lots of steak, no. we're going to consume lots of salt, lots of caffeine, no. fat. No. I'm going to disconnect. No. I'm going to disconnect from the system. No. What happens? No, the answer is no, all right? Let me just tell no, you. No, but I want to disconnect. My insurance provider is no. like backing me. All right, or on the other hand, on the other hand, it's, you, it's the same people who are saying things like health is a right. And it's the same people who are thinking that, that our ability to connect to the internet is a fundamental right. So it, it's you disconnecting know, you, a right? That's a good question. Um, it, it's a contextual right. Is breathing a right? Do I have the right to breathe? No. Like, you know, you're going down a slippery slope, right? You know, it's coming This is a complex topic. Yeah. But I think fundamentally privacy will change. Privacy will yeah. shift. But, but yeah. I, I should at least have a choice somewhere as to how that data is being used. Well, Can again, I at least again, argue that side of the house? I mean, right? And I want to disconnect. I'm going well, on the weekend. Take so me off the grid. Can I, can All right, I'll, I'll give you that. I think you can, but you'll miss out on some conveniences and experiences that you know the world around you is, is delivering to based on. You might opinion. actually have to think about what I eat. I won't get a suggestion. I'll, I'll, I'm going to say I'm going to have a steak. I'm not going to have this protein bar because it's better for me. Way, I'm going to think. Okay. Ray, Ray is a foodie, so yeah, yeah, let's yeah, yeah. No, I'm just kidding. All right, you can disconnect, Ray. Let's take another. No, we're just going to change the definition of disconnection, right? I mean, my keyhole satellite view of you. Is not going to go away, right? It's not going to go away. I know but you we'll, pay a lot. We'll let you I'll, believe. Let you I'll let you keep looking. I'll let you pay a lot for it. Okay. And that's the uh, notion of innovation. Innovation can be complex. It's certainly, it's a confluence of disciplines and rigor. Uh, what are some of the principles you apply in terms of furthering innovation when you are working with a client and they're hoping that Nostra Think Tank is going to help them transform their business to the next level? Well, I mean, there's a couple of emerging trends I, I've written about on psychology today. Um, th the first is the true nature of, of collaboration. And we're moving from an environment dominated by control, dominated by IP, 
closed source to open source where there's a broader collaborative engagement. What we're finding is that, that really smart people are not in the brick and mortar walls. I like it, I think of it as a three-legged stool. There's the lightning of discovery, there's validation, especially clinical validation, let's say in a pharmaceutical company, and third is market access. Hmm. Pharma doesn't have the lightning bolt. As hard as they try, they just don't have the lightning bolt. So to me, they've got to be able to look outside their walls for that, for that lightning. So in my experience in this whole notion of the collaboratory, you know, which is a blessing and a curse, I feel that the collaborative nature is, is fundamental. And you're seeing that in society. We now collaborate on our care. Robin can articulate this perfectly, that what we see now is that it's not just control. The doctor doesn't give me the pill. I engage in a dialogue and we negotiate care. The other point that I'll make here, which I think is critically important, is that innovation is fragile. Everybody thinks that innovation is like Elon Musk like a bull in a china shop, knows what he wants, goes out and gets it and works four jobs in one week, right? No, no. <laughs> Innovation is a little bit more like Nikola Tesla, a fragile soul coddling a special idea. And when you've got lawyers and regulatory people and, and all the big voices of pharma screaming at you, ideas get squashed. So for me, the idea of taking an intellectual average as a point of innovation or consensus is nonsense. That's the mushy middle. That's wrong. You have to find the point of innovation and then move the entire group to that distant part outside of the circle. So for me, it's a collaborative dynamic fostered by this notion of, of, of nurturing uh, the genius, nurturing the innovator, because they're often not you know, the rock star who's going to solve all your problems over the course of a weekend. Sure. Related to that, right, is that, that yeah. as we're talking about this is this notion of aging in place and life extension and life expansion. Are we at singularity or where do we see this taking place in the next three to five years? Do we live longer and have higher quality of life? Can we do that? Um, what are those cool technologies that are popping up? Yeah, you know, I think that life extension, life expansion is the perfect way to put it because everybody, when I talk about life extension, everyone always says, I don't want to be 120 in a wheelchair or 90 in a wheelchair. And that's true. And I think we have to look at the ability to repair. You know, if you take care of your car, it'll last a long time. And when your tire fails, you fix it or you replace it. And the same thing is going to happen with humanity. I think that we're going to see an immense, a, a, a tremendous um, intrusion of, of regenerative medicine. And I think the stem cell is probably one of the most interesting points. Uh, the stem cell is your body's repair kit. When you're young, you got lots of them. When you're old, you have very few. That's why our skin loses elasticity, because there are no stem cells to repair. We're seeing tremendous advances in stem cell science. The problem, as I see it now, is that, number one, stem cells are sometimes difficult to get. If you use your own stem cells, you have to get them uh, from umbilical cord blood and freeze them when you're young. If you're using uh, biologically active cells to treat cancer, oftentimes that's an autologous process where you have to take them out of your body, manipulate them, and then put them back. Well, the problem there is those cells are intrinsically damaged because that's a person with cancer, you know, in the immunology space. Interestingly, we're seeing something where as we shift from organ donors to data donors, right? we're seeing one organ emerge as probably the quintessential organ of transplant. That's the placenta. Placenta. There's a new company coming out now called Cellularity, C-E-L-U-L-A-R-I-T-Y. It's got very, very interesting on, uh, people on the board. And um, it's, it's looking at the development of biologically active cells 
using the placenta. So I think that's going to be a big, big area. Let's talk about big areas. John, when you, when you map out your research uh, areas for the next one to two years, can you share with us you know, what are some of the areas that you're going to research, you're going to write about, you're going to collaborate with? Well, one of the things I'm looking at is the nature of the human condition in the context of technology. Because I think that the most fragile element of growth and innovation is that fragile human spirit. And as we look at the advancement of humanity, you really have to question yourself, is, is, is humanity an antiquated modality? And how do we integrate that into this rapidly changing notion of health and medicine and wellness? So, so that's one of the things that interests me a lot. Um, certainly the emergence of AI, machine learning, um, is going to impact our lives, and that, that's a keen area for me. Uh, regenerative medicine is, is big. I'm not a fan of nudge psychology. I'm not a fan of trackers that tell you how many steps you take. I think that, I think that, that that's small-minded. I think there are big, big changes that are going to diagnose stage zero disease, that will look at disease at the earliest possible level, the first cancer cell in your body, find it and kill it. Find a heart attack before it happens, because we know the occurrence of a, of a myocardial infarction actually occurs over hours, even days. And if we can track those, those chemicals, those biomarkers using nanotechnology, what we do is we eliminate the heart attack before it happens. So, but, you know, but don't, you, but don't you think these gamification principles is part of the preventative care practice? Sure, sure. <laughs> Vala, I think gamification, nudge psychology, all works, yeah. you know? But I, I don't think that it's going to get the 65-year-old the man with metabolic syndrome off yeah. the couch. You know, yeah. I think we've got to shift things that are largely athletic options into clinical, inter, uh, clinical imperatives. And we do that by leveraging technology. The interesting thing is everybody talks about getting to prevention, right? The, the holy grail, prevent, prevent, prevent. Well, number one, nobody pays for it, right? Nope. I, number two, nobody does it. I, I'm not eating my lettuce, and I, I'm eating chips and ribs on the couch at Ray's house, you know? So the way to get to prevention is by finding earlier and earlier and earlier and earlier detection. In essence, it's an asymptote. You're actually sharing a border with prevention, and the way you get there is through technology-mediated early detection. So that's on my radar screen. That's what gets me all jazzed. Awesome. That, is, that is really that awesome. Is really awesome. So when you think so about what's about happening in the world of funding and VCs for these health tech startups, is the funding picking up? Is it drying up? Are people still interested? Um, are people willing to make that long bet? Yeah, I think the quarter, uh, you know, Rock Health was $3.6 on the quarter. Um, it, it's, a, it's a new high. Um, and I, I just wonder if VC is chasing the wrong target. No, I think that there's a lot of hype. You know, I mean, yes, Peter Thiel gets blood transfusions of people with young blood. And, you know, and, and a lot of celebrities are getting behind pseudoscientific initiatives. And I worry about that. Um, but I don't want to squash the innovative thinking because these really cool ideas come from the wacky guy in the garage. I mean, that's, that's where <laughs> Apple was born. That's where Medtronic was born. So I want to embrace that. But I think we have to be grounded in some functional aspects of science because, look, let's take a look back over our shoulder. What do we see? Theranos. Yep. And, and, you know, those are problems and those are stumbling points. But if you look at funding, just dollars, we are headed in digital health for the biggest year yet.
No, that is wonderful. We are on here with John Nosta, president of Nosta Labs. You can follow him on Twitter at J-O-H-N-Nosta, N-O-S-T-A, one of the foremost authorities on health, health tech, and innovation. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Hey, Ray, always a pleasure. Vala, you too. Thank you very much. See you on Twitter. <laughs> John is terrific, and uh, he's got to come back. We've got more complex uh, topics to discuss with John. And uh, it's now our pleasure, Ray and I, uh, we're honored to have Blaji Srivasan, CEO and co-founder of 21.co, as our next guest. Balaji is a computer scientist, an, invest an investor, an entrepreneur, and an academic. Uh, prior to taking a role as CEO of 21, uh, Dr. Suravasan was a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, he invests and advises startups. He teaches a popular massive open online course at, st at startup.stanford.edu. I believe over 200,000 students have attended his classes. He also runs the Stanford Bitcoin Group. He was named the MIT TR35, 35 top innovators under the age of 35, and Founders Fund F50 list. Uh, prior to that, he was the CTO and co-founder of Council, a genomic startup that began in Stanford Dome Room and now tests roughly 4% of all U.S. births. Uh, Council won the Wall Street Journal's Innovation Award uh, for Medicine, was named one of the Scientific America's top 10 world-changing ideas, raised more than $65 million in funding, and has become one of the largest clinical genome centers in the world. He's another great uh, thought leader on t uh, to follow on Twitter. You follow him at B-A-L-A-J-I-S. Welcome, Blaji, to uh, Disrupt TV. Hey, welcome, Bella. Thanks. <clears throat> hey, welcome. So we're going to go deep on uh, blockchain, but let's, let's set the stage for everyone. So apology, look, massive hype around blockchain, lots of projects in play, lots of POCs. If we take the Bitcoin approach, which is the um, decentralized federated approach, out of it. Where are we on centralized private distributed ledgers? And if we take the Bitcoin approach going forward, where are the trends? Because there are two different types of conversations around uh, blockchain that we see out there. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say at the uh, at the very highest level, you have, um, and there's different ways you can cut this, but you have blockchain. Then you've got public blockchains and private blockchains. And then within the public blockchain space, you have various cryptocurrencies. So Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, et cetera, et cetera. In the private blockchain space, you have um, Hyperledger, Interledger, Chain, Axoni, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you can actually also generalize this even a little bit further to include so-called digital assets, which yeah. include things that are tradable, um, but that are not necessarily blockchain-based directly. They're kind of not really part of this blockchain tree, but they are more similar to cryptocurrencies than they would be to the, uh, the private blockchain stuff. Okay. So with that is sort of like a high-level taxonomy, um, and you could literally make like a family tree like this, the node that initially led to the whole thing was Bitcoin, um, which was the first blockchain. And, you know, it's still the biggest, um, uh, but only barely recently. Um, and uh, what that led to is essentially these, these public and private blockchains can sort of be conceptualized as uh, the distinction between internets and intranets. Nice. So um, in, the, in the 90s, actually, so Mark Anderson was the first to um, observe this almost exact similarity. When the internet, uh, internet was, uh, you know, starting to gain popularity, a lot of corporations uh, said, why would I want to connect with some random person across the other side of the world? What if they could look at my documents and so on and so forth? That doesn't make any sense. But this intranet makes sense to connect all of my employees and allow them to message each other within the, the office, replacing the intra-office memo system and, and so on and so forth. 
So corporations started working on intranets. And then of course, what happened was you had the network of networks, the internet that networked all of these intranets together, right? Um, in very much the same way, uh, the success of Bitcoin um, led a bunch of people to pay attention to it. And then there was this narrative that, oh, blockchain rather than Bitcoin was the innovation. And then all these folks started working on this new tree of innovation, the private blockchain tree. Now, where I kind of see these things linking up, it was kind of obvious even in, in I think, 2013, 2014, is this, these are the intranets that basically do internal settlement within, uh, within a company or within a social network or within a consortium of banks or what have you. And then uh, they uh, settle out to a public blockchain like a Bitcoin or an Ethereum or what have you, right? And so essentially this, you know, internet of money is, this is how it's kind of developing. So when most people think about blockchain, they think about Bitcoin. And in 2010, I read a developer bought a couple of pizzas and paid 10,000 Bitcoins for them. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, ounce of gold today is about $1,200. Price of Bitcoin today is about 2500 So this developer paid roughly $25 million today's <laughs> value for a couple of pizzas. Yeah. Uh, what's the reason behind this incredible growth of, of, of Bitcoin? Yeah. What, should, what should be people thinking about, companies thinking about in terms of, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, according to the World Economic Forum, now is a $100 billion, you know, market cap. Yep, yep, yeah. And actually, you can track that market cap in real time. There's a website called literally coinmarketcap.com. And as of right now, it's at $96.3 billion. <laughs> so, if you, so that's, that's a good website where you can track all of the cryptocurrencies, not just, not just Bitcoin. Um, so what's going on? Why has this thing just rocketed from absolutely nowhere to, I mean, frankly, changing the world? Yeah. Um, you know, a, a good way of thinking about it is um, that uh, Bitcoin and, you know, now Ethereum and all these other coins represent something which I would say comes after startups. Um, so, you know, startups have become something which, you know, were, you know, the, like the, the kind of concept became common in the 90s. And then everybody started doing them after the 2000s and the success of Y Combinator and so on and so forth. And it's become like almost so mainstream that people think of it as a de facto way to do things. Um, but there's always a next thing. And uh, Bitcoin and digital currencies and so on are in my view, uh, what probably comes after startups. And what do I mean by that? Um, so first is, uh, you know, one way to think about how digital currencies get their value is you just think about how offline currencies get their value. If you have uh, a na nation state, if you have a region of people, even if it's like you know a million people, like you know Estonia is only 1.2 million people, um, we consider it legitimate and reasonable for that group of people to have their own currency, yeah. right? And so the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker all transact between each other in the kroon or whatever their their local currency is, dinars or or what have you. And there's no like conceptual limit on how small the country has to be. Maybe you know 10 people would, wouldn't be too small, but even a million something people, we can see empirical evidence that you can have an internal currency, right? And you can have an exchange rate. It's treated seriously as a currency. Okay. So um, we now have this new phenomenon and one of the key prerequisites for Bitcoin was this concept of social networks, um, where social networks are agglomerations of people that aren't in a physical location, but that are online, right? And so if millions of people offline can have this informational thing that they all decide to value, namely a currency, and frankly, the reason I call it informational is, um, you know, it, it's not, it's basically something that everybody in that network just needs to agree upon as being valuable for transaction and voila, it, it magics into, into being. That doesn't require people to all be in the same physical place. They can be distributed. 
And that's what Bitcoin is. It is the first digital currency based on uh, millions of people who are in different spots around the world deciding to give it value in the same way that they could give it value if they were all concentrated in one physical place. And now, of course, that's the first, but it's not the last because you can have a similar kind of group with the Ethereum community and the Zcash community, the Monero community, and this community and that community. And that's what we've seen. Um, now, if you look at the market caps, quote unquote, of national currencies, uh, they're pretty large. And uh, in fact, they dwarf the market caps of most companies. You know, like the maximum market cap of a, of a company is Apple at like 600 billion, but there's several currencies that have market caps that are in excess of that. Um, so that suggests that we've actually hit upon something which could maybe be at its peak 10x or even larger uh, than the very, very largest tech companies. So that's really interesting. Um, so that gives a sense of what is giving this thing its value um, and how you can connect it to something that had value before this, which were offline currencies for nation states. So the, the value that's actually available is going to be where we actually move from the private Bitcoins to the public Bitcoins and that interaction of value exchange, whether it's monetary, non-monetary, or even consensus, that's where this commerce is going to occur, the transactions. Yeah, so, so uh, one, uh, it looks like I'm, yeah. So one um, small point of clarification wouldn't be public Bitcoins and private Bitcoins, it'd be public blockchain and private blockchain. Just right, for- blockchain, sorry. I mean, I, you keep, unfortunately, I've caught up in calling everything Bitcoin, it's blockchain. <laughs> And that, no, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. And that's really what it is. So the premise behind 21.co is, right, is you're actually giving people some items and assets to actually transact against, right? Yeah, Things so- for the services or offerings or a product, right? You're giving people the ability to just do that. And you started out with like one or two, two very, very common things that people use. Yeah, that's right. So basically the idea is that um, right now there's maybe five to 10 million people worldwide who are holders of digital currency. That's, that might be a large estimate, but that's roughly where, you know, kind of the wallets and, and so on are. Yep, um, yep. And, and essentially, in order to earn digital currency right now, you either need to A, be technical enough to uh, mine. Install, exactly, mine, mine digital currency, or B, you need to go and, you know, basically take a financial risk and pull out your credit card or your bank account and buy digital currency, right? Um, and those are the two major ways that people have gotten it up to this point. But there's a third way that you can get it, which is earning digital currency. And uh, how could you earn it? Well, we've come up with a very simple way that everybody can understand, which is reply to an email. And uh, the idea here is LinkedIn InMail is a pretty large business, which um, it's about $500 million a year, uh, various estimates, where the senders will pay uh, LinkedIn um, in order to put a message in your InMail inbox. Uh, Now, that's a very inefficient market for many reasons, one of which is that the recipient doesn't actually receive any money. And number two is that the sender can't mass message people because LinkedIn actually sort of deters it because they know that uh, it's not like, you know, super fun for the, for the recipient to get lots and lots of messages, right? right. There's a gigantic demand for businesses to cold email people uh, for recruiting purposes, for sales purposes, market research purposes, many purposes, right? And business development, et cetera. And actually Salesforce.com is also actually built on, you know, cold emailing as well, right? Like, I mean, basically what you're doing in Salesforce is, uh, you're, you're blasting all these prospective customers with messages and, and email is uh, today primarily a business-to-business communication medium. So uh, the reason to focus on that is that's something that, you know, there's a billion Gmail users alone. Every business is using this back and forth. There's already a precedent for scaled $100 million businesses that pay to message people. Um, and, uh, and not just to message them, rather, to get a reply from them because um, that's really what you want. You don't just want to put it in their inbox and have them not see it. You want to actually get a reply. And the thinking is that, uh, that's a great way, a very easily understood 
form of digital labor that's really easy to compensate with a digital currency. It can happen across borders. You can send a message to somebody in Japan and they can reply. Um, it can happen uh, you know, across currencies, so they can be in different you know, time zones or countries. And the digital currency aspect of it makes it completely seamless. Um, so that's something that we're pretty interested in and excited about is these kinds of uh, uh, activities. Um, and uh, you can, once you get people to be able to reply to emails for money, um, you can then immediately say, okay, fill out the survey for money, and then more generally complete this digital task for money. Click these buttons, fill in this form. And a task can be you know, of arbitrary complexity. Um, it could be solve a bug bounty. It could be, um, you know, go and, uh, you know, review this code or even, you know, eventually uh, diagnose this image or give me a legal consult or, or copy edit this document, right? So reply to an email is kind of the very first thing, but then that's a mod modality and methodology to distribute tasks at large scale over time that people can Now that you have this trusted, uh, seamless to use, um, and incentivized framework with 21.code, what are you seeing in terms of, Performance. Uh, how does it uh, compare to the traditional model of, of spray and pray for yeah. for services? <laughs> a good question, Bala. So actually, you know, I, I think uh, I showed you a graph that we had, um, which you know we might be able to talk about at a conference later. But um, we're seeing actually an average of sixty percent of people who get a Twan.co message reply within twenty four hours, um, and uh, wow. that's the average. That's um, ridiculous. Wow. Which is Really, really, really high, right? Yeah. As a former CMO, that is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it is something where, you know, I, I showed a bunch of graphs to follow, but essentially you just, you know, you put out the incentive and well, boom, you just quickly see a curve of all these people just completing the task. So we've really got like a, like a new internet phenomenon, a new way to coordinate hundreds or thousands of human beings by the retrospectively obvious uh, method of offering them an incentive. Um, and so this is pretty cool, and this is kind of you know where we think is is the kernel of something that could be quite big. So we can take that, apply it to elastic and elastic pricing models, identify price floors and price ceilings, yep. and actually start creating markets, right? Because this is the beginning of a market, right? That, that's exactly right. That's right. So um, we're we're pretty bullish on this because we think that um, a lot of people. So what's happened up to this point is there's been gigantic demand online for email lists, right? All kinds of companies want to buy email lists. All kinds of companies want to send cold email to decision makers. What has not been there is actually the supply side, right? So it's a great kind of market where there's gigantic demand, but the supply isn't there because recipients don't want to be cold emailed, right? The more senior the decision maker, the less likely they are to accept a cold message. Um, however, what we're doing, um, you can use it for one of three purposes. First, you can obviously keep the money, and that's maybe more you know typical if you're a, uh, like a more junior person. Or B, you can donate to charity. And so this can be part of your charitable giving program. Like so just by replying to you know 10 emails a year, you can basically give a thousand dollars to a good cause. Uh, and so that's something which is which is I think pretty cool. Um, and third is uh, you can uh, potentially eventually book it as revenue for your organization. So you can turn your um, you know your your vendor interface uh, you know into something which is actually generating revenue because vendors would then pay to get in touch with you. So we have a conversion of monetary, non-monetary consensus and a whole bunch of tasks against a digital currency. And what you're doing here is democratizing that digital currency in the way you earn it and in the way that you actually can spend it. Because that's real, that's the that's the barrier behind Bitcoin at the moment. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, like... Blockchain. Blockchain. Sorry. No. So, in that particular context, I actually think 
Bitcoin would be an appropriate uh, thing. Uh, so, so I would not saying yes, yes. But, um, but if I trade a Bitcoin for something else, like for an asset or for an agreement or for consensus, then we actually move into that model. Yeah, that's right. So basically, like digital currency right now, um, the primary use case for it is speculation about how useful it is going to be, right? So um, now, what's funny about that is that speculation. Now, uh, so I will, I will uh, slightly let me slightly qualify that, which is, what are the major use cases for digital currency right now? So first, maybe the most important is store of value, right? Um, now, uh, one of the previous guests, uh, you know, said that uh, you know privacy is over and so on and so forth, and I completely understand that point of view from one angle because with big data and, and whatnot, you need to aggregate lots of data. On the other hand, uh, I think that um, digital currency gives an extremely strong incentive for privacy um, because if you don't keep your private keys private, you have lost all your money. Okay, it is like you know there, there has to be something private. Your password has to be private, right? Where my wallet is. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, now, what's interesting is I think of a private key um, as a sort of boat anchor, which uh, because you have to keep that private, there's an entire ecosystem of things that yeah. I think will start assembling around that, which will also be private. For example, eventually what may happen is rather than you going and keeping all of your data, you know, on remote servers in the cloud, uh, I think, you know, we've, we've got this concept of the billion smartphones as the next data center, where instead all that data is local and you essentially bill remote services to access it, okay? And so if you've got this boat anchor of a private key locally, you start building essentially monetization around it and uh, anything that you can resell or keep quasi-private or accessible on demand or, or what have you, uh, then you would uh, you'd be able to, to monetize it that way, right? So, um, uh, but, you know, so, so that's kind of how we're thinking about um, the, the privacy aspect. But recursing back up, your question about you know expanding opportunity and access and what have you, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, if you can make it very easy um, for somebody who doesn't have technical ability to earn digital currency and have that be done in a sustainable way, not a faucet where you're just giving away the money, but something where they're actually doing an honest minute's work for an honest minute's pay, um, and that's really what we're talking about here, um, I think you can, you can significantly increase adoption. Power to the digital labor, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Well, when we have uh, startup CEOs on the show, Ray and I like to ask uh, advice to other startup CEOs. Your best advice, maybe it's regarding hiring or how do you maintain a culture of, of, of innovation. What can you share with other startup CEOs that are, that are watching the show? That's a good question. Um, well, I would say that, uh, you know, I'm not sure that if, so there's two different kinds of startup CEOs, those who have not started one yet and those who, who are currently operating, right? <laughs> um, so uh, for, for those who are currently operating one, um, you know, I think um, having something that gets you, I mean, this is, this is somewhat trite, but basically having something that gets you up in the morning that is more than the daily operational grind is very important um, because it's, it's something which is, um, you know, you need to have something higher, right? Um, and for me, I really do believe in, you know, decentralization. I do believe in um, kind of the freedom that, that digital currency brings. Uh, previously, at my previous company, I, you know, at Council, um, I really believed in actually taking the genome out and, and actually making that useful, taking this huge societal investment and actually making it medically useful. That was something that got me up in the morning. That was something where, you know, like, whether it's debugging or whatever grinding thing you have to do that day, sometimes it's literally bringing in the Alhambra bottles or what have you, you know, very, very early in the startup. 
um, you, you get through it because you have that that higher kind of motivation. Uh, so that's for the COs who already exist. And you know, if, if you have lost sight of that, then maybe you know you, you want to try and try and find that again. Um, for for those who haven't started yet, I'd actually offer something you know maybe a little you know uh, I wouldn't say controversial, but I'm not sure that if I was doing something from scratch today that I'd ever start a company again. Um, I think I would do something pure blockchain. Uh, because if you're doing a company, you have investors and you have employees and you have uh, employers and you have customers and so on and so forth. Um, but if you are doing something purely on the blockchain, all of those things become much fuzzier. Um, as an example, you know, does Vitalik have investors? Does he have employees? Does he have employers? Does he have customers? Not exactly, not in any conventional way. It's much more fuzzy. What he's done is he's created a technology that other people can use and certainly they look to him for guidance but he doesn't have the same level of direct responsibility, yet he does have influence, monetization, um, and uh, you know, many, many other positive aspects uh, also impact. Now, today, uh, the route to, to do something like that, you actually have to program something which is like a full separate blockchain, like a Tezos or an Ethereum or what have you. Uh, tomorrow, I think it may become more accessible and we're gonna see more kinds of decentralized organizations arise. Um, and uh, sort of in the same way that what you know Mark Anderson did with Netscape opened up a completely new window um, you know, of, of internet startups and a new way to run a business that was different and in some ways more freewheeling than you know, what came before. I think the blockchain is gonna open up a new way to run something that generates commercial value, but it may not necessarily be like a C corporation headquartered in Delaware. Um, one of the reasons for that is a, a blockchain basically over time, it, it, this is a little bit of an overstatement. No, actually it's a lot of an overstatement today, but in five years it won't be which is that a blockchain can teleport in rule of law as a service into any jurisdiction. Wow. No, okay. and actually, we, I have a couple friends that are doing that. I can't disclose who they are, and they, they, are, they are in the process raising hundreds of millions on this. And so okay. this, is, this is actually okay. real. This is happening, Apology. Right. So it's, uh, it's happening <laughs> on, on multiple efforts. Yeah, yeah. So cool. we'll make some private introductions. But uh, we are with Apology, Srinivasan, <laughs> CEO and co-founder of 21.co at Twitter at S. And you can follow him for the latest around blockchain21.co. And of course, we've been talking about the future of business and of course, what's going to happen with these new disruptive business models and technologies. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you, sir. Awesome, man. We are rolling today. Ray, uh, Balaji dropped a lot of science on us in that 20-minute segment. My, my brain is going, woo! Uh, <laughs> I think he even simplified it for us. <laughs> That's the thing. It, it's harder to simplify things. And yeah. for more thought leadership and innovation and, uh, and, 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 and smart influence, we have what we call our cleanup hitter spot, where this last person comes and hits a grand slam. <laughs> so no pressure. But our, our, our last guest on Disrupt TV is Robin Farman Farmin, angel investor and VC and Invicta Medical, co-founder and board of directors at Oregon Preservation Alliance and vice president of business development at Act Volume. Robin uh, is a professional speaker, an author, and entrepreneur. Uh, currently, Robin is an investor and VP in Invicta Medical. Uh, medical technology company focused on sleep apnea. Robin is also Vice President of Development at Actavalon. Actavalon. Uh, Robin is co-founder and board director members of Oregon uh, Preservation Alliance, catalyzing breakthroughs in crypto preservation and uh, tissue engineering and organ transplants. She founded Morfit and Exponential Medicine at Singularity University, and she's a best-selling author of a book titled 
the patient as CEO. We're going to learn a lot about that. Another awesome follow. We only bring people on Disrupt TV that are awesome followers on Twitter. <laughs> you can follow Robin at R-O-B-I-N-F-F-3. Robin FF3. Welcome, Robin, to Disrupt TV. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. And listening to John and Balaji were amazing. <laughs> no, but we so you wrote something that was very controversial yet very insightful. And you talked about this thing. And uh, for those who don't know, I actually have a master's in public health not being used very well at the moment. But for, for those of you out there, I mean, you were becoming a blockchain Bitcoin expert. So that's I, I know. <laughs> so, you know, what what is patient driven healthcare, and why is it better than patient centered healthcare? Because this has been the big conversation that's out there, and, and we see that happen all the place. Place. And remember, I come from a family of physicians. I mean, I mean, they're 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 like completely like, oh my god, the patients are calling the shots now. So, what's the difference? What's going on? Why is this transformation? And tell a little bit about your own personal journey. Sure. So, uh, to give you a little background on myself, I am also not only an entrepreneur working on companies that are poised to impact at least 100 million patients worldwide, but I'm also a chronic disease patient myself, which I hid for the first 25 years of my career. Don't do the math. <laughs> And uh, so all told, um, I, child I, prodigy, child prodigy. <laughs> uh, so at the age of 16, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease. All told, I've had 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries, and three organs removed. Uh, at the age of 26, this is seven years after they had taken out my entire large intestine, uh, my doctors were telling me I was cured, but I knew I wasn't. So I fired my entire healthcare team, took control of my own healthcare got diagnosed correctly, put on a medication called Remicade, and literally at that point after 13-year misdiagnosis in and out of the hospital, almost died about seven different times, I went into remission overnight because I took control of my own healthcare. And so that's really what patient-driven healthcare is, or the patient as the CEO, is that people who, are, who need to, patients, are stepping up and actually taking control and becoming a key decision-maker on the healthcare team. Now, why that's slightly different from patient-centric healthcare is because patient-centric healthcare says the patient is in the center, but it's still not giving them a voice, right? It's still saying, you are the victim, we are going to take care of you, you come into our hospital, our doctor's office, and you do what I say, right? Instead of saying the patient being the one in control as the CEO, similar to like a corporation, right, where you are CEO, you're not an expert in marketing, finance, engineering, uh, any of those types of uh, departments, right? But you're an expert in the company overall. So I say being a patient should be the very same thing. You're not an expert in healthcare, but you are an expert in you. And you're an expert in how you feel and how you want to live your life. So you need to surround yourself with doctors, chiropractors, massage therapists, healthcare professionals, nutritionists, whatever you need in your personal health journey to help you make decisions and engage in your own health. So your book, the, the full title is The Patient as CEO, How Technology Empowers the Healthcare Consumer. W was it social and mobile and technologies that John Nosta talked about at the beginning of our show that helped you better understand uh, and gave you that empowerment to take control of your, your, your healthcare journey? Absolutely, and it really is about the convergence of technology, allowing patients to take control. Because back when I first got sick, the only access to information I had were healthcare professionals. So when I went into my 10-minute doctor visit, or I tried to go to the library and I couldn't read the medical ease, right? If I got medical books meant for physicians, uh, there was just no information accessible. But now with things like connectivity, 
and using the power of the crowd, um, many different things are enabling us as patients to have information. And that is the groundbreaking thing that allows patients to be in control of their own healthcare now. That's awesome. So we're seeing shifts in healthcare across the board. And when you think about it, there are a lot of obstacles, right? Sometimes it's technology, sometimes it's legislation, sometimes it's cultural that's in the place. Um, what's being done to empower the patient to be the CEO in terms of, you know, from a legal perspective to giving them more rights or having more options, but also to protect them from not making a bad decision? Because there are cases where not everybody is fully informed to be able to make those decisions. Exactly. And I say you need to have a healthcare team. So if you're making a decision, remember, you need to talk to people about these things, especially if you're if you're doing something medical, like uh, taking a medication or something, and there's a lot of background behind it. But you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there, there are times when you need to have all those second opinions, and you could potentially hurt yourself as a patient. Because especially if there's a lot of misinformation out there on the internet, and you need to know where to go to find the correct stuff, right? So you don't go to maybe Wikipedia because that isn't a, a, techno, uh, a medically valid you know, type, of, uh, type of website. But you do go to like the NIH, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, Harvard, any of the name brands, and that's where you can get actual information where you're not going to make as bad of a decision, right? <laughs> and, and, and double check on Snopes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of barriers. One of the biggest barriers is still people's mindsets, actually. And because uh, patients up until recently always felt like victims. And they were treated like victims in the healthcare, in the, in the entire healthcare industry. And physicians always kind of play God, right? And you go in, especially in still other countries too. Like I, I published some articles in Medscape Germany, and a physician wrote at the bottom, "Oh, as soon as patients take control of their own healthcare, I'm out of medicine." <laughs> like they want to leave, right? So a big thing is the mindset and saying, you know what? I am not a victim. I have the power to take control. And here are the different technologies that are empowering me to do that, from sensors and point of care diagnostics to things like what John was talking about with artificial intelligence. Right? That's going to be a big, big deal in the world of patients. Wow. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about wearable technologies, artificial intelligence. But before we get to that, as you consult healthcare providers, like that perhaps that physician who wrote the comment on your blog, how do you convince them that the patient should own their data? And uh, in the spirit of transparency and collaboration, that's the fastest path to, to wellness. How, how do you convince them to think so about I don't actually try and convince people to do things, right? Uh, because if they're already very against the data, the, the patient having data or information, then they're not the person I want to work with. And I remind patients of this all the time. You are not stuck with your healthcare provider for the most part, right? You can fire them. You can change your doctors as frequently as you want, right? Or any of your healthcare professionals. So if you go in there and you say, I want my data, I want access to my um, EMR, right? I want to know all the notes. And they literally turn you down then that's not the right place for you. You should go to a different hospital or even the next doctor over, right? Even in the same hospital system might be better for you. Great advice. Great advice. And it's hard, right? I mean, when you think about healthcare, the, the challenge is it's very hard to compare apples to apples. Doctors are working in different conditions. They have different levels of training. I mean, it's, it's very, very qualitative. Um, are there tools that are helping folks quantitate, quantify at least what's going on or at least be able to make those comparisons? Because... I mean, it, it seems very hard. Is, is that coming from new technologies? Is it coming from policies? Is it coming from new companies? What, what are you seeing out there? 
So uh, in terms of like physicians themselves, you can look up. People are starting to grade physicians. It's slowly like the Yelp. Better than health grades? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so go on there. The Yelp of physicians? Exactly, the Yelp of physicians. Um, you can do that, but I mean, it's not just physicians, right? It's any of your healthcare professionals. How often do you actually see your, your physician versus, say, a chiropractor or your nurse, right? Especially if you're a chronic disease patient, you're seeing a lot of these other types of healthcare professionals first anyway. And if you're seeing something like a chiropractor or something outside a major hospital, they all have Yelp reviews, right? So you can literally even ping some of the patients and say, hey, um, how was this person? But the really cool thing is, is that we're starting to see artificial intelligence being used to match patients to their actual providers. So uh, one example of that is a very disruptive business model uh, called Talkspace. And what this is, is it's a 24 hour day, seven day a week, unlimited messaging by text or by, you can upload videos and stuff with your therapist. And the way they pick your therapist is based on artificial intelligence on your personality. Now this is a really big deal. And they're doing this with IBM Watson, by the way. And so- uh, Warren and Ronnie have been uh, pioneering this for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 isn't it? It's so interesting. And so now when I see my therapist, it's been chosen specifically for me based on who I am. That's, that, that's amazing. So <laughs> it, through discovery and pattern matching, they'll find the best fit provider. Um, and and, and, and that, so that's, that's, an incredible, that's an incredible example. Match.com match meets WebMD. And exactly, exactly. And that's really what is needed because I've had plenty of physicians I didn't get along with right off the bat. Like it just, we knew we weren't going to be good personality matches. But then I got a ton where it was immediate, like you walk in, you make a connection. And my healthcare is actually dramatically improved when I'm with a healthcare professional that we see eye to eye. That's awesome. We've yeah. had, uh, you know, we've had CIOs in the healthcare space. David Chow was a guest uh, of ours, and I spoke to our chief medical officer at Salesforce. And there's consensus that as we move from volume-based to value-based performance metrics, healthcare providers will definitely leverage data for more personalized, immediate care delivery and shift from preventative, from from you know, addressing the health issues to more preventative mindset. Take us five to ten years from now. What would be the what? What does an empowered patient? What does that feel like? What does that look like when you walk into an emergency room or you're working with a with a physician? Well, um, first of all, you probably won't need to go into an emergency room because you will have so many ways to collect clinical grade data in your home that you are essentially triaged already. Right? Like, why would you go through an emergency department if you don't need to be triaged? You just go to the right part of the hospital where you need to receive care. So things like an ED can actually become a dispatch center, right? But we're already seeing a huge number of clinical grade point of care diagnostics in the home, reaching the patient, and they cost anywhere from you know fifty dollars to a few hundred. In fact, you can even get a clinical grade ultrasound now for a three hundred dollar a month subscription model that plugs into your iPhone. You can do blood labs in your home that are that you can use CLIA certified laboratories where you collect the blood in your home and send it through the mail. This again, that can be made uh, used by a physician to make a uh, a diagnostic on. By the way, if it's using a CLIA certified laboratory. Right. Uh, we can do EKG monitoring in the home. We can do, oh gosh, there's, there's so many stethoscopes. And these are all like available to the patient and the collected data on the cell phone, right? On the smartphone. And you can see a physician that way. Wow. Sounds like we're getting to the Star Trek healthcare of the future, right? <laughs> Tricorders, connections, do it right on the spot, right? Yep. 
I mean, are we close? Is it is it is it happening or? It is, it is, and if you want, I mean, the equivalent of the tricorder, it's not going to be in one little machine yet, but uh, you can do the equivalent already with, with FDA-certified devices in your home, right? We, it exists. It's just not been democratized yet. Wow. Now, what's happening in the world of personal medicine, right? We're going, I mean, people are choosing their own doctors. They're choosing smaller groups. We see this um, concierge medicine picking up. Um, is that something you see as a continuing trend uh, as part of this, you know, uh, approach that people are taking as patient-driven healthcare? Yes, yes, absolutely. So, first of all, uh, lots in the world of concierge medicine. I'm doing all of my healthcare basically in my home now. My primary care physician comes to my house for an hour. My nurses come to my house and give me IV medications for like four or five hours at a time. But we're we're seeing a personalized medicine is incredibly exciting, and I like to call it personalized instead of precision because I think of it as precision medicine when you want it, where you want it, and how you want it received. Right. So truly personalized to the individual. Healthcare as a service. Healthcare as a service. And uh, with, with things like cancer treatments, it's incredibly exciting with the world of precision and personalized medicine because what we can do now is sequence a cancer tumor to give you a personalized medication based on what that, that tumor is. Right? And that's a really big change in the world of oncology. Wow. This has been a pretty eye-opening segment for me. Thank you, Robin. You've, uh, you've been an amazing guest. Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah, no, this is great. We're talking with Robin Farman-Farian, angel investor and VC in Victim Medical and co-founder and board of directors at Oregon Preservation Alliance and also a professional speaker, best-selling author. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you for calling from Pally. So. Sure, thank you. So. Wow, action-packed, Disrupt TV this Friday. Holy crap. <laughs> Ray, we had the three incredible guests, and uh, this is why Friday's are my favorite parts of the week because as I, as we know, experts come here to share. So it's uh, pretty awesome. And next week, we're gonna follow up with another uh, amazing uh, group of guests. We have Scott Hartley. Wow. He's an entrepreneurist and author of The Fuzzy and the Techie. He's Who him on the show? That's awesome. Yeah, you got Scott's <laughs> new book. We got Abby Goldberg. He's a CEO of Dispatch and he's yep. revolutionizing service delivery, and, and he's an incredibly bright, young CEO. And we end with a first ballot Hall of Fame Disrupt TV inductee when we do have our Hall of Fame open officially, Larry Dignan, Editor-in-Chief of ZDNet. You will so find it on virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, episode 70, I'm looking at these notes here. You can catch us on podcasts, SoundCloud, iTunes, and subscribe to the videos on YouTube and Vimeo when it's 10 a.m. Pacific. Uh, 11 a.m. Pacific, uh, 2 p.m. Eastern. You can definitely catch us on Disrupt TV. This is awesome, Vala. This has been a great show. Thank you, Ray. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>